0: So, for the last number of years, on the weekend that we have our barbecue, uh, because there's so much going on in preparation for that during the week, we've always invited a guest to come and share God's word with us on this weekend. And this, this Sunday is no different. Uh, I want to introduce to you a, a close friend of mine. His name is Chris Lonneville. Chris was the pastor at, at Family Life, Family Life Church in Warsaw. Uh, how many years were you there? uh, 31-year pastor. Yeah, give it up for that. Yeah, 30. And uh, has recently kind of segued into retirement, although in ministry there is really no such thing as that. We've kind of really figured that out already, that uh, that if you are... uh, On God's team, he's got something for you to do all the time. So uh, anyways, I want to welcome him here this morning, invite him to come, share God's word with us. Would you give him a warm welcome as he comes?
1: Okay. Wow. Wow it's an honor and a privilege to be here thank you very much for inviting me Uh, when pastor josh called me and asked if i would come letting me know that pastor jeff was experiencing some physical challenges i was reminded of a story of a little eight-year-old boy who went to church with his mom one sunday morning and they noticed that the person standing on the platform was different so he asked his mom about it and she said well he's a substitute well, what substitute? I don't know that word. He says, well, do you remember when you threw the ball through the window a couple weeks ago? He says, yeah. Well, remember, it was on a Sunday and nothing was open, so Dad had to put a piece of cardboard in the window temporarily until he could get another pane of glass. He says, yeah, I remember that. She goes, well, that piece of cardboard is called a substitute. He goes, oh, I get it. And so they went through the rest of the service. At the end of the service, as they were making their way out, She was horrified to watch her little eight-year-old son run to the pastor who was there, shake his hand and say, I want you to know you're no substitute. You're a real pain. (laughs) Um, And my hope is that uh, in some way I could be a real pain to you today. Um, I, uh, as Pastor Jeff said, I've been pastoring a long time. And when it came time for me to, oh, oh let me get this segue first. Um, I said to Pastor Jeff, in my church, I have a rule. The rule is introductions and closings don't count as preach time at all, <laughs> all right? So I'm just telling you that up front. okay? Um, as I was nearing the time when I would be retiring as senior pastor of Family Life Church, um, a friend of mine who was ahead of me in this game uh, said, Chris, what you need to do is you need to get together about eight or ten sermons that you think are really good sermons that you could preach anywhere, anytime, and you get those ready and have them all ready to go. I said, okay, I'll do that. Well, Josh called me on Wednesday, I think it was, and mentioned about this possibility of coming down, and I had two thoughts go through my mind. The first was, oh, good, I'm so glad I put together these sermons that I could preach anywhere, anytime. My second thought was, Okay, I don't like any of them anymore. (laughs) Have you ever? And so, unfortunately, you're stuck with me, kind of winging it today a little bit from what I normally would. Uh, This message is scary for me. In fact, I put it together, and uh, I came to the decision I wasn't going to do it last night because it was just too personal. Um, But. I felt like somehow God had asked me to do it back on Wednesday, almost immediately, as soon as Josh called me. I think I even told him something like, I feel like I have something. Um, So I'm gonna do it anyways, and trust that even though it's personal, you guys won't judge me for that, and you'll be okay, and that maybe God might actually speak to you through it. Um, Does this thing adjust height at all? I I don't wanna break anything up a little bit. <laughs> okay, there. Perfect. All right, man. Um, thank you, Pastor. August 25th, 1953. How many of you guys remember that? <laughs> Wait, some of you guys raising your hands weren't even born. August 25th, 1953. On that date, Michael George Lonneville was born to George and Hilda Lonaville. Sixteen days later, on September 10, 1953, Michael died. They found him in his crib the next morning, no longer breathing. Five years later, on April 3, 1958, Chris Aaron Lonneville was born to George and Hilda Lanaville. Now. Let me give a little caveat here. I'm gonna talk personally about myself and about my family, about my dad. Uh, It's important for you to realize that as Paul Harvey used to say, there's always the rest of the story. I don't have time to tell you the rest of the story. Pastor Josh gave me 10 minutes. Uh, (laughs) um, But you need to know that 12 years after I was born, in 1970, my dad miraculously encountered the living God. Uh, my dad had worked at a place called Gleason Works in Rochester, and he had a man by the name of Elwood Hill Flicker, who looked a little bit like Barney Fife and acted like him. Uh, he witnessed to my dad again and again, and my dad finally, in frustration, decked the guy, and when he fell, he fell back into one of the cutter machines badly hurt and uh, ended up in strong memorial hospital and gleason works in its infinite wisdom said to my dad you better go and make it right to him before he sues us we don't care about you so my dad went and said to elwood in the hospital what do i need to do to make this right and elwood said you need to go to church with me on easter sunday (laughs) so my dad went to spencerport assembly of god And again, I know you don't know my dad, but my dad was a big guy. He was a strong guy. His idea of a great weekend was multiple fights where he could prove how strong he was. My dad walked in the doors of the church at Spencerport Assembly of God, and he began to weep uncontrollably. Didn't understand it, didn't know what was going on. Fled the church, left my mom there, (laughs) and drove home. And Elwood and his wife brought my mom home and led my dad and my mom to the Lord and at that point we had six kids in our family is all and he made us all line up on the floor kneel on the floor and say the sinner's prayer Uh, so again I'm not going to deal with that part so much but you need to know that my family ended up being 13 kids by the way Uh, Nine of us are still living, four of us are in full-time ministry, and others are serving God in their own way. So so there is the rest of the story. But back to the story in 1958, I was born, and you would think, knowing that my dad had already lost his firstborn son, that my dad would be thrilled that he had a boy. But that was not the case. Uh, My dad was far less than thrilled. Um, For the longest time, I was the only boy. Uh, I had seven sisters before another boy came along. Uh, And by the way, growing up with seven sisters is fun, as you can imagine, which is why I am the way I am. Um, (laughs) But it seemed like no matter what I did, it always came out wrong. I was always making mistakes, and getting in trouble. At the heart of it, and, and please understand again the rest of the story, but at the heart of it, my dad made it clear I wasn't Mikey. And I would never be Mikey. He lost. He would say in word, in deed, and in attitude, You're not the son I wanted. The son I wanted died. And that's what I grew up with. Um he would tell me regularly I will never amount to anything, that anything I put my hands to will go wrong, that I was a failure and a disappointment to him, and even though I'm in my mid-60s now, uh, those words still echo in my head. I just took a moment and I tried to, just as quick as I could, what are the, a couple of the key words Dad would use? And he would say this, you're good for nothing you're a snot, you're stupid, you'll never come to anything, you're a lazy bum, you're a jerk. All those things I heard again and again growing up. I mean, I heard them in word, in deed, and with attitude. Now, some people when they drink, uh, my dad was a heavy drinker, a heavy smoker, some people when they drink become more pleasant They become fun, and kind of a clown, and make jokes. Some people become morose and more depressed. My dad was an angry drunk. Uh, And again and again, he took the brunt of his anger out at me because I was the only boy. And so I can remember one Christmas Eve day, I must have done something wrong out in the barn. I can't remember what it was. It had to be pretty serious, of course. But I must have done something wrong, but my dad grabbed me by the neck and dragged me out to the barn, took his belt off, and began to whip me, the whole time saying over and over again, you have ruined Christmas for everyone. Um, The only time I can remember my dad saying he loved me, other than the week before he died, was the time he brought me home from the hospital where he had put me. Uh, I, we grew up in a little farmhouse, maybe some of you guys had the same thing. We had steep stairs, and so when you would go down, there would be like this shelf right in front of you where we would pile up our games. And apparently, I was causing some problems for my sisters because they were yelling about me. So my dad stormed up the stairs, grabbed me, picked me up, and threw me down the stairs, and I hit that shelf head on. Ended up unconscious, you know, all kind of mingled up. And they took me to the hospital where they dropped me off, my dad came to get me in a. Uh, some of you guys remember this. How many of you guys remember the old three-seater station wagons, where the back seat faced the other way? Yeah. Right. So when my dad came to get me at the hospital, uh, I sat as far from him as I could in the way back seat, and he drove me home. Sat in the driveway, and I'm thinking, I can't get out. This door only opens up from the outside. So would you please open the door? But he sat there for the longest time until he finally said, you know, I really do love you. And I thought, yeah, right. Um, I do believe my dad loved me. I just think my dad was a broken man. And he needed healing in his own soul. And even though he became a Christian, he still deeply needed healing. And is that not true for all of us to some extent? Are we not all a work in progress that he comes, he saves us, and I'm saved. But i got to tell you, I'm getting saved every day. I need Jesus to save me today. Um, Jump forward to December of 1975. Whoa. Thank you. December of 1975, just down the road from here, actually, I think, in Delavan, New York. Isn't that right around here? Circle C Ranch. My church took our youth group to Circle C Ranch, and I went. Uh, I didn't like any of the preaching because it was all about the white throne judgment, and we're all going to hell. I didn't like any of that. But uh, my brother-in-law and I, late at night, escaped out of one of the cabins and went for a walk up to the shower room, and we just sat there and talked. And we both made the decision that for the rest of our lives, we were going to follow God. That was probably the most significant change point in my life. Until the day I realized that if Jesus is my Savior, that means God is my Father. And I didn't like that very much. Because the only image I had of fathers was either the fake images on Leave it to Beaver, or you know, Georgia, and all those things, or my dad. Uh I don't have much room in my life for a father. Um, I was a Christian, but I struggled with insecurities, fears, anxiety. I lived with a constant sense of doom hanging over my head. When you grow up with a father who can explode at any point in time for no reason that you can understand, especially as a little kid growing up, you live wondering when he's going to blow up at you. Well, I lived wondering when God would finally come to his senses and realize I was just a jerk, and he wanted out of this contract called salvation. I mean, I knew God loved me. He has to. It's in his job description. God is love. But I didn't think he liked me. I thought... He probably was bugged by me and wished he had never met me in the first place. I was just waiting for most of my life for God to get tired of this guy who messes up all the time. And that he would send me where I so richly deserved, to the woodshed of heaven, where I would get the beating that was mine. I wondered when he would take me off of his list just like Santa Claus, and put me onto another list called the naughty list. I wondered if God could do anything with me at all. So there I was, years into this thing called Christianity, but I still struggled. And it was in 1976, I don't know when you guys did, but in 1976 I went to Elam. uh, And I went to Elam primarily hoping that they could fix me. Uh, much like a lot of people get involved in the counseling profession, those who do often are coming out of a place of brokenness themselves, looking for help for themselves. Well, I went to Elam hoping to finally have God help me get better. Uh, to my amazement, I met a young lady there who was smart and pretty and a God worshiper, and for whatever reason, she seemed to like me. And I was glad for that, um, Some time went by and she came to the point of even telling me one day that she loved me. And I loved the fact that she loved me, but inside, I kept wondering, when is she going to realize how bad I really am? What a jerk I am, how stupid I am, how I will never amount to anything. And by the way, lest you not understand how significant it was, her father was the president of Elam. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine what he was thinking? So, we did what everybody in love does. We got married. And I wondered how long we would be married before I would fail her miserably and she would know that she made a mistake. Well, we got married and I failed her miserably. Again and again, as is our want as guys. We do sometimes not so smart things. And I wondered when she would finally realize... This isn't going to work. It was in October of 1982 that my life took the next major change point. In October of 19, October 26, 1982, born to us was this little six pound baby boy named Jonathan David. And I got to tell you, it was the first time in my life that I really began to understand something about love. I held this little boy, uh, and I didn't think I could ever love anything more in my whole life. Then along came our second-born son, Jeremy, and then our daughter, Jennifer. We weren't sure we could even have girls, but we did. Um, And um, do you guys remember the movie, or maybe for some of you old enough, the book? Uh, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas? Remember there's that point where the Grinch had stolen all the gifts and all the decorations and had tried to cancel Christmas, but when he looked down to Whoville, they were still celebrating Christmas because he realized Christmas had less to do with Christmas gifts and decorations than it does to do with the heart. Well, uh, it says that his heart suddenly grew three times bigger. And that's how I felt. I felt like my heart grew bigger. And then in 2007, along came Jocelyn Grace, our first grandchild. We now have nine. And um, I can remember one occasion holding her in my hand. She was just a little baby. And I can remember having the thought, I love you no matter what. Nothing you can do will ever change the fact that I love you with all my heart. And in that moment, I felt God whisper to my own heart and spirit, I feel the same way about you. And I'm thinking, no way. Um, I was playing with uh, her and her uh, sister, Natalie. Uh, We had a paved driveway, and it was a hot day, hot day. And so I, I sprayed the driveway, and I'm spraying them as they run through the water, and I'm having so much fun with them. We actually lay down together in the puddle of water on the driveway. Yeah. And I can remember thinking to myself, life doesn't get better than this. I could just die now and be forever happy. <laughs> and I felt like God said, I did. You see, Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he died for you, and for me. You see, I feel like the word that I come to you today, and that, that, by the way, that's all introduction, so it doesn't count as my time. Um, <laughs> Josh, you heard. <laughs> the word that I come to you with today is what you sang this morning. I couldn't believe it. I felt like, okay, I don't even need to preach. You're singing this every word. That grace is the basis of everything in our lives. And that God didn't choose you because you chose him. You chose him because he chose you. God didn't make a mistake with you. Maybe some of you feel like I do sometimes. I still hear those words, and they'll still come out of my mouth sometimes, and my wife will have to remind me whose I am. Not who I am, but whose I am. Because whose I am determines who I am. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1. I don't want to take a lot of time. If this were in our church, I would go word for word, uh, phrase by phrase, but I won't do that to save time today. Um, I, I believe that God, in his infinite wisdom, knew what he was doing when he put his hand upon us. And his heart is large enough to encompass all of us. Galatians chapter 1 says this, verse 1. I'm trying, Josh. This thing keeps turning. Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, I can't read those words without being aware of the tone of voice that Paul is using as he's stating this. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys ever study uh, commentaries or look at them, but uh, I had a library of over 5,000 books when I retired and just got rid of them all, just said, they're all gone. And I gave most of them to a new pastor down in Corning, New York. But most of those commentaries say this, Paul had an insecurity complex when it came to his calling. That because of what Paul had previously done, he never felt adequate to this. So he had to constantly, out of his fear and insecurity, he had to constantly tout his title and his office, apostle. So that when you read it, they said Paul would say it this way, Paul, an apostle. Hope you got that. But I don't hear that at all. I hear in Paul's voice a sense of awe, a sense of amazement and gratitude that God would give him the privilege of serving in the way that he did as an apostle, one sent by God. Now, if you're like me, uh, I I am now retired, and I find it amusing uh, when people ask me, what would you like to be called now? Um, I I go down to a little uh, deli in Warsaw that has some of the best coffee around, by the way, Uh, Bud's Deli, and I sit there, and even these guys who aren't Christians will say to me, what should we be calling you now? Call me the same thing you called me before. My name's Chris, by the way. But there are people that you meet that if you don't use their office title, get offended. Have you ever met somebody like that? When you call them on the phone, they answer, Reverend Dr. So-and-so. And and I'm thinking, I know I'm the one calling you. (laughs) Or if you don't call him bishop or prophet or whatever. But I don't see that with Paul. What I see with Paul is Paul wasn't dealing with arrogance. He wasn't dealing with insecurity. He didn't wear his title as a badge of accomplishment. He wore it as a badge of acknowledgement. Here, too, is the grace of God, that he would put his hand upon me. Verse 2, And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, and it could be the church here in Arcade, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul starts out his letter to the churches in Galatia, much as he would write to you here today. And he starts with the fountainhead, or the source of everything, which is the grace of God. If you've walked with God any time at all, you know it's always all his grace. His grace alone is sufficient. Uh, For those of you that might be new, grace is simply, and this is the definition I learned in the Baptist church when we first got saved, grace is simply God's favor towards you that is undeserved. Undeserved favor, that's what they would say. That's grace. Is that true? Yes. Yes. But I think grace is much more. One of my favorite preachers of all time who uh, just recently uh, passed away, went home to be with the Lord, uh, Jack Hayford, he said, grace is the active work of the Holy Spirit on your behalf doing what you could not do for yourself. I think that's good too. I love that. But the one I like the best comes from a writer who's not a theologian. He's a pastor, but he's a storyteller. Max Lucado. And he says this, Grace is the face God wears when he looks at you and me. Grace is the face God wears when he looks at you and me. I love that. It's kind of like um, some years ago, uh, my wife and I went on a vacation, and we had uh, a little grandson by the name of Caleb. He was about a year old at the time. Uh, He's an interesting character. He has interesting thoughts. But we had been gone now for two weeks, the longest time he had ever gone without seeing us. When we walked in the doors of their house, just to say hi to everybody, we're home, he saw me, and he was so excited, his face lit up, and he began to run in circles because he didn't know what to do with his love. And he stopped, and he ran, and he hugged my leg, and then he ran in circles again. I want you to know that's grace. Grace. That's a picture of grace. Not because I deserve any of it. It's because a little boy loves because he can't help but love. That's what's inside of his soul. And that's what grace is. And then Paul goes on to say if grace is the beginning, peace is the result. The word peace, by the way, we, we tend to think of it as a cessation from warfare or trouble or strife or whatever. But the word peace actually means settledness, it means rest, it means security. That because of the grace of God, you can be secure in the fact that he chose you. When I got saved, I went through a doorway, if you would, into salvation. And on the doorway, I said this, I chose. And it was only as I walked with God longer, years down the road, that I looked back at that same doorway, and I saw it said chosen. He chose me and him before the foundations of the world. You're chosen by God. Not because of your performance or how good you are. You are secure in him because of his grace. Because he chose you. Verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Just like then... There are people today who try to make your faith, your Christianity, about things you must do. You know what I mean. How you dress, the clothes you wear, your hairstyle, um, the music you listen to, the places you go. It's all about what you do. When we first went to the very first church we went to, uh, when my parents got saved, No, that's not accurate. The second church, I'm sorry. The second church we went to uh, was a Baptist church. And taped to the door frame when you went into the sanctuary, taped to the door frame, was a yardstick. And I didn't know what it was for. And so finally one day I asked our Sunday school teacher, what's the yardstick for? He says, it's to make sure that the girls' skirts and dresses are long enough. They can only be so far off the ground. Can you imagine? That's what your faith walk has to be? And By the way, girls had to have long hair, couldn't cut their hair short, had to have long hair, had to wear dresses or skirts. Guys, I'm talking about, I was probably 12 years old. I suddenly had to start wearing dark pants, a white shirt with a tie every Sunday to everything. And if you wanted to be a really good, mature Christian, you had to have a Schofield Bible. King James Version, of course. Because people try to take your faith and put it based upon performance rather than upon his choosing, his grace. They twist grace into something that is far less than that. It's actually the law. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now that word accursed, very simply, the simplest definition is the word hell. So, what Paul is saying is if anybody preaches anything other than the gospel of grace I preached to you, let those ideas go straight back to hell where they came from. To hell with those kinds of ideas. Now, there were people who obviously didn't like Paul because he talks here about these people who kind of argue with him about it. But there were people who didn't argue with him. They said, We like Paul. We agree with Paul. We think what Paul preaches is wonderful. It just doesn't go far enough. You need to add a little bit in order to be really good Christians. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is addressing here. Paul is saying, basically, that you can't have faith in Christ and think that it's based upon you. It's based upon what he has done. And I don't know why, of all the things I could have preached, that God would say for me to share this today. But there's somebody here, you need to hear that. It's not based upon your performance. It's based upon his, what he has done for you. You can sing these songs until you're blue in the face and they don't sink into your soul. Something needs to shift. An encounter with the living God is what you need and what I need on a day-by-day basis. Paul then begins to share something about his background, much like I did at the beginning. I did that on purpose. I wanted you to see that just like my life, Paul had history in his life that could have disqualified him. But listen to what he says, verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. So here's this guy, Paul, who was basically Zealous, He was uh, excited, and he he was rabid about his defense of his own religion, Judaism. And he's going around persecuting and destroying this new religion that had come on the scene. Uh, When I was in Tanzania last, Josh mentioned you guys have a missionary in Tanzania, I guess. Uh, When I was in Tanzania last, we did a baptismal service on the side of Mount Kilimanjaro. And these were people that were in a church that was made of uh, mud and dung. Uh, But this was their church, and they were faithful to God. But the interesting thing is, as we're doing a baptism, there are people up on the hill throwing glass bottles and rocks and stuff at us because they had a different religion. That's the kind of thing that Paul was doing in his own zeal for Judaism. <clears throat> Paul trained under a rabbi, by the, way, by the way, named Gamaliel, who was considered one of the most renowned rabbis of the day. He was like the up-and-comer. He was like the guy who was making his run for the presidency of Judaism. And that was with Paul, until one day he encountered God. And for some of you, you come to church Sunday after Sunday because that's what good Christians do. You come to church, My question to you is, when is the last time you actually had an encounter with God? I'm not talking about reading the Bible. That's good, and I mean that sincerely. Read through the Bible every year. I think that's a good practice. But when's the last time you had an encounter with God? When you met with God personally, and he did something inside of your soul. He helped to bring peace to you where there had been upheaval. I mean, Josh prayed it so well when he was up here about all of the stuff that's going on in the world. People are so upset, whether you be Democrat or Republican or what's going on. I'm thinking, no, you're citizens of the kingdom. Let that be your priority. I'm not saying not to have a heart for your nation. Absolutely. We ought to love where God has planted us. If you can't love where God has planted you, find where you can love. But I am saying to you, God wants to meet with us. He doesn't just want to talk about us in his word. He wants to meet with us and to change our lives forever. So here's Paul. He's on a road to Damascus, it says in Acts chapter 9. He's breathing out threats. He's got a letter from the chief priest saying, here you go, you can go and destroy these people, throw them in the jail. But it says in verse three, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So. All of that I've said has come to this point. What is it that Paul did to deserve this intervention by God? Uh, Less than nothing, a negative. Here's Paul. He's living his life passionately for what he thought was God got off base somehow. God has to come and rescue him. But Paul had done nothing to deserve that. It was all God. Maybe you think God saw the potential in Saul. You know, after all, he's pretty zealous. And you're thinking, well, God saved Paul because he figured he could use that zeal. That's kind of like Christians today. I had somebody not too long ago say to me, oh, we need to be praying that Elon Musk would get saved because think of what God could do with that money. I'm sorry, is God short of money and he needs Elon Musk? Should you pray that Elon gets saved? Yes. But not for God's sake, for Elon's sake. Or if only Tom Hanks would get saved because he's such a wonderful man. He, he, He carries so much gravitas in Hollywood. God doesn't need Tom Hanks. He ended up cast away anyways. Um, sorry for those of you that ever watched. Couldn't help myself. But listen to Paul's words. Go back. To you. I'm back in Galatians 1. Galatians 1.15. This is Paul's words. But when it pleased God. Just stop. Just stop. Come on. It pleased God. God didn't do it and then say, I wish he could get out of the contract. It pleased God. Who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. By the way, when did all of that happen? When did Paul say it happened? In my mother's womb. Did Is there anybody else that you know that that said of them? That from their mother's womb they were separated? How about Jeremiah? Chapter 1. Jeremiah, God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and ordained you a prophet to the nations. Or how about John the Baptist? When the angel says to Zechariah his father, he's going to be filled with the Holy Ghost from her womb. So, what is it that Paul did to deserve this salvation? What is it that Jeremiah did? What is it that John the Baptist did. What is it that I did that deserved God intervening in the Lonaville clan? Not a thing. It was all his grace. And the same grace that saved me is the same grace that keeps me. Every day, marvel at his grace. It ought to be, when you read the words that we have read, there should come into your soul a sense of awe. And when I say awe, it's an awful thing that God would save me. There was nothing in the Lonaville family, nothing. My dad was a drunk, he was a three-pack-a-day smoker, he was a fighter, a brawler. I mean, there was nothing about him that would make you think God says, I really need George Lonaville," <laughs> Or, from George Lonaville. Chris Lonneville, or all of my other siblings who have followed God so faithfully all of these years. Nothing that we have done. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. There are people who think that the reason why I'm here today is because I was raised in a Christian family, so I've always loved God. And again, I, I, I am grateful that you were raised, hopefully, within a Christian family. Or for some of you, you're, you're saying, uh, I was raised in a non-Christian home, but I searched and searched and searched. I read until I finally found God. Okay. I think the reality is God never lost track of you in the first place. I believe that God ordains our lives. In fact, my challenge to you is that this week, maybe take a look at your own life, just like I talked to you a little bit, just a little bit about my life. Take a look at your life. Is it possible that God was involved in your life long before you even knew it? Hence, bringing you here today? that God actually had his hand upon you? You didn't think it. I mean, while I'm being beaten by my dad, I didn't think anything about God. But when I look back, I realize, God, you even used that in my life to make me who I am. So as imperfect as my dad was, God used imperfect George Landerville, in imperfect Chris Landerville's life. And I love that about God. He never wastes anything. I believe God searches us out. He puts his mark upon us. You're set aside for me. And I think that's true for every one of us here today. You're not here by accident. You're not here because of your own doing. Now, by the way, in saying that, you could take it that what I mean is you don't matter. It's all God. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying you matter so much to God that it's all God who saves you who sets you apart for his purposes. In the Old Testament, there's a story. It's a weird story, by the way. I mean, I don't know if you guys read through the Bible, but there are some really weird stories in the Bible. Um, There was a story of a guy by the name of Hosea. God comes to Hosea. Hosea is a prophet of God. Think about that. I don't know how many prophets you know. I've known a couple in my day. But Hosea was a prophet of God. And God comes to Hosea and says, I want you to go to the big city and I want you to find a pimp who's driving around in a Cadillac and I want you to pay the purchase price for that prostitute right there named Gomer. And I want you to take her home and I want you to love her. Can you imagine what that was like for a prophet? A godly man? Hosea does it goes, pays the price, brings her home, says, I love you. She keeps running back to her pimp. And he keeps going back and getting her and bring her home and he says, I'm going to love you and I will never stop loving you. And that, God says, is a picture of how he feels towards his people. Do we blow it? Yeah. Do we run sometimes? Yeah. But he keeps coming after us and says, I love you and I can't help myself. When John and Jeremy and Jen were born, they got lucky because they were born to me. And I've told them all of their lives, there is nothing you can do that could make me stop loving you. There's absolutely... I had my uh, a relative, I, I was almost said who it was, I had a relative ask me once, what if your kids uh, became gay? I said, there is absolutely nothing they could do to make me stop loving them. Nothing. And when my grandkids came along, I mean, you all understand what I mean. I love my kids. I do. But I really love my grandkids. (laughs) You understand? Okay. Um, It's not that they can't be normal kids, can't drive you nuts sometimes. Of course. But I've told them, you have a grandpa who loves you so much that you're going to be embarrassed by my love. Because I'm going to love you. And that's what God said to me that day as I was holding Jocelyn in my hands, I love you that much and more. What I would like you to do is to, maybe this week if you would, take some time and just spend that time waiting with God and ask God, what does he feel about you? What does he think about you? And I suspect that for most of us, we need to get rid of some of the thinking that we have grown up with. We need God to begin to heal some of the broken places in our own hearts and souls. And begin to understand the depth of the passion that God has for every one of us. Um, I had somebody ask me recently. um, It's funny what happens. I don't know. Um, Is it true that this is the only church you've ever pastored? Right? Yeah. Were you before that? Yeah. I went to... candidate at a church. I won't say what it is because you would know it. And uh, I preached and it went well. It went better than I've ever preached in my life. Way better than today. (laughs) While I'm preaching, people are standing up cheering, literally. It was like, whoa, I'm the preacher of the day. And uh, when I got all done, the elders said, we'd like to meet with you. So that was that. So I sit down and I meet with them. They asked me all kinds of questions. And And one of the questions was, what do you think about eternal security? So I just gave the briefest of answers. Finally, one guys. well, I've got a question for you. Okay. So say uh, I've walked with God for the last 70 years of my life, faithful, serve God. I'm an elder in my church. I do everything right. I don't sin. I don't lie. I don't do any of that bad stuff. I am a righteous man. And then Saturday night, I go down to the city and I get a hooker. And while we're having relations, I have a heart attack and die. I need to know, will I go to heaven or not? Made me wonder. It's a true story, true story. My answer was, you don't want me as your pastor. <laughs> I'm sorry, if you're gonna ask that kind of dumb question, you don't need me. Here's my idea of eternal security. Eternal security is when you've experienced God's grace to the depths of your being. And you know he holds you and no one can pluck you from his hand. So. I don't know why, of all the messages I could have preached and there were some other ones that I had put together that I thought were better, I really felt like God wanted me to come and say to you, it is grace alone. Grace saves you. Grace keeps you. It's the pursuing of God for you. So would you bow your heads for just a moment? And again, I'm asking you, just take some time this week and bask in his love for you. The same God who called Paul called you. And your life has purpose. You matter to God. You matter. Please hear me. You matter. God didn't make a mistake when he chose you. With all of your failings, with all of your weaknesses, with all of your sin, he still chose you. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, we are chosen, adopted, and accepted. Accepted by God. Maybe you didn't feel accepted growing up, but you're accepted by God Almighty. Father, I'm asking you in the strong name of Jesus Christ that you would Touch something deep in the soul. I don't know who specifically this message was for. Maybe more than one, but I'm asking you to touch the deep places of their heart where they're scared inside, where they feel like they don't count, that they're not as good as everybody else. That broken place in them that lives with the fear of being rejected ultimately. When they lay their head upon their pillow at night, they, they wonder about, when I die, will I really go to be with God? Or was all of this just made up in my mind? I'm asking you, Father, Father, who's better than all other fathers upon this planet? Father, would you not touch them in those deep places of pain and brokenness and bring healing to their souls? To know that they are loved, they're wanted, they're accepted, they're not being put up with, that you put your hand upon them for a reason. Not for what they can do for you, although you have purpose for their lives, but solely because it pleased you. Out of all the people on the planet, you looked down and said, I want them. Lord, let that be like something that grows within their soul throughout even this week. We're coming up soon on sharing testimonies of miracles that happened in this house. Lord, well, the truth is every single person here is a miracle. A miracle of God's grace and love. And out of that, let them know the peace of God, the settledness, the security that they're a part of God's family and that you never are looking to get out of that lord let your hand rest upon them hover over them as surely as you did over the waters of the sea and where was that chaos and that darkness you brought light and you spoke order into it do that in our souls i pray i pray it father in the name of christ amen